and welcome to One to Grow On, a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts us and our world. This week, we've got Andy Murphy. This episode is the second of two interviews I did in Crown Point, New Mexico with Navajo food activists. Today, we have Andy Murphy. Andy is a journalist and food storyteller. She's originally from Crown Point, but now lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where she's an associate producer for Native American Calling, which is a national live call-in radio program about issues specific to Native communities. In addition to that, she also hosts a podcast called Toasted Sister about Indigenous cuisine and Native chefs and is a freelance multimedia journalist. We taped this interview after a food demonstration that Andy gave at Navajo Technical University. Here's Andy talking more about her work. Yeah, well, I'm trying to talk about just like everything mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of other people. There's magazines dedicated to a specific kind of food or a specific issue in food, but there's none focused on Native issues. So I try to focus on every aspect of Indigenous food from access to health to uh, revitalization, to culture, to connecting languages, environmental issues, appropriation, all kinds of all kinds of issues, um, because I don't think we hear enough about them, especially in mainstream. Andy mentioned revitalization there, and I asked her to talk more about what that meant to the Native food movement. So revitalization, you know, means to bring life back to something. And, and that's quite literally what, um, you know, people in this movement are doing. Because a long time ago, colonization, forced colonization really was almost the death of a lot of food, um, traditional food seeds and the knowledge to collect these specific ingredients, to know how to cook these specific ingredients. All that kind of knowledge was suppressed and forced away from the people during colonization, during the boarding school eras. So um, right now, uh, people are working to revitalize that and uh, go to elders and culture keepers in the community and ask them, how did you cook this? How, where, where does this grow and how do I cook it? When do I pick it? When do I start growing these things? Do you have seeds from long time ago? So you're starting to see people really do seed saving, finding those old seeds way back in their family, back in their generations. And you're starting to see people really have a focus on relearning food culture and uh, food knowledge and bringing these things into their kitchens today. So that's what uh, revitalization is. I asked about the history of the Native food revitalization movement. Here's Andy. Well, I know we call this a movement because, uh, you know, with movements, there's like a beginning. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you see it play out into whatever, you know, cultural change is going to happen because of it. But, you know, I really can't say when this revitalization started. I mean, probably, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, even maybe even more. I mean, we're coming at it right now when it's like, you know, it's in the media. People are curious about it. There's podcasts about it. <laughs> There's, um, you know, all kinds of coverage about it. People are starting to rise up and have names in the culinary world because they do indigenous food, because they're revitalizing food. So now we're kind of seeing like the media paying attention and that's part of the movement. I think it started happening a couple of generations ago. I mean, right after um, boarding school, people were like, you know what? We got to save these things because they are going to die. Just like with language. I think, um, you know, it's, it's going, well, 
I don't know, it's hard to compare like language and then food. Like sometimes I explain it to people like that. You know, people are revitalizing their language and they're starting to pay attention to it because they don't want to see it die. They're kind of seeing it dying in their communities. It's just like with food. But, you know, I think food maybe is a little bit easier to bring back into your life. For historical reference, Andy mentioned the boarding school time there. This is in reference to the American Indian boarding schools, which were institutions run by both state and religious organizations in North America. These schools had the objective of forcibly assimilating Native children into Western Christian culture. This was often referred to, quote unquote, Christianizing or civilizing these children. This practice began in the 1600s and was institutionalized with compulsory attendance laws in the late 1800s. This practice continued throughout the 20th century, although the passage of the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act of 1975 is generally considered to be the tail end of this period here in the U.S. This practice was a violent exertion of white and Western supremacy. You'll hear my next question here in a minute. Um, I mentioned commodity boxes. To this day, the U.S. Department of Interior supplies commodity foods to reservations as part of treaties with tribes. In the past, much of this was things like lard, white flour, sugar. Today, the Department of the Interior works with tribes and the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs, to source foods that are more nutritious and culturally relevant. So you recently did an episode about specifically in New Mexico how different Pueblo cultures prepare bread, right? But wheat is an introduced commodity crop. So can you talk a little bit about how like new foods, particularly foods that you know might come in commodity boxes or have in the past come in commodity boxes that were provided to tribes by the federal government, how those kind of are fitting in with this present day movement and I don't know if you just have some thoughts on that. That's something that I don't know a lot about. Yeah, you know, with the Pueblo food article, um, it was just uh, because I, I love Pueblo bread. It's like one of my favorite kinds so of breads good. to eat. <laughs> so I really wanted to know the history of this, you know, so flour and, and this bread and this whole process was, of course, introduced to the Pueblos. And so are a lot of things that have been introduced to us. But, you know, some people can, you know, in this movement, they can look at it a couple of different ways and say that was death of us Mm. because now we have health problems and you know the highest rates of diabetes and heart disease because of these introduced foods and then it's so prevalent in every one of our lives that we can't like it's hard to separate and go completely pre-colonial because then again we still don't have that kind of knowledge of traditional food to be able to create that kind of dish, to create that kind of pantry in our own homes because we're also working a job or two jobs and then we have kids so we don't have time to really go pre-colonial with these things. Not all of us. I think that that question also leads into like the health a yeah. conversation about health. You know, those kinds of food, you, you mentioned the commodity foods and introduced foods. I think you know, I want to see this kind of evolution in our kitchens, in our personal kitchens, where we are no longer eating like survival foods, the meat and potatoes, the simple breads, going to the store and having a loaf of bread on the table all the time, because that's how my family used to 
uh, eat. Just really simple, very meat and potatoes and some bread. Mm-hmm. That was like almost every single day. And it's kind of still like that, but I've kind of helped my family broaden their palate a little bit. And now they have some different foods in their pantry. But I think that's kind of, you know, that p- poor man's food, those really, you know, cheap foods, rice, potatoes, stuff like that. I think we can start moving away from that because we have access to food knowledge. We have access to the internet where we can watch food videos all day. If we're curious about something, we can go on the internet and find a recipe. We can, um, when we take a trip into town, we can go and get those ingredients that they don't have here at Bashes. And our college students too, when they're out there in college, they're away from mom and dad, they're out of mom and dad's kitchen. They have the freedom to go and taste things and bring that experience back and if they come back to their family and kind of get them to broaden their palate, I hope that next we see everybody, you know, regular old Joe Indians, <laughs> really broadening their palates and cooking differently. I think that the majority of our of our podcast listeners probably live in a city and probably grew up in a city. Mm-hmm. So that idea of needing to kind of leave home to go out and broaden your palate and, you know, maybe leave home and drive for an hour or two hours to yeah. buy ingredients might not be something that comes to mind for a lot of our listeners. But that's definitely something that, you know, happens every, you know, every day. Yeah. That's kind of what living in a rural situation is like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, from here, the the meal I made today, the tacos and the agua fresca and the three sister salad, a couple of those ingredients we couldn't get from here. So I brought them in from Albuquerque. So, you know, the access still really is a really big problem in rural areas and rural Native America, because, you know, sometimes I when I when I said that just a little while ago, like, you know, you can go to town and get these ingredients, you can go to town and, you know, do these things. But that's like maybe speaking from a place of privilege, mm. because I have that privilege of living on the outside, you know, outskirts, you know, the edge of the Navajo Nation, we're on the eastern edge of the Navajo Nation. Some people live way deep in the middle, um, where it's even farther to travel to a grocery store, to even a store, <laughs> or even a place that has electricity. I mean, and that's that's the reality in some places and that's the reality in many native reservations across the country. I hope you're enjoying this interview with Andy Murphy. Andy is amazing. Please check out her podcast once you are finished listening to this interview. Big thank you to our Starfruit level patrons Mama Casey, Vikram and Lindsay. You guys are incredible. You light up my whole life. You make the world go round. If you want to support the show, the best way to do so is to tell a friend or a family member or, I don't know, a neighbor, a mailman, whoever you've got. Think of an episode that you really enjoyed of the show and who you know who might also like that. We have so much coming up on the horizon and we really want to get more people excited and interested so that we can make better content. So if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and family members, either in person, on social media, whatever works for you. Back to the episode. Yeah, I kind of did a podcast episode about this, the uh, No Longer Gentle Indians, where we talked to a nutritionist and then a health-centered chef, a holistic chef. And we talked about people who are coming in and telling us what to eat. Like, you should know that there's this much sugar in this piece of food. Fruit has this and starches and, you know, you're supposed to have a third a cup of this and a half a cup of that and that's what you should be eating. You know, I think that's not very helpful at 
at all. Um, so I'm kind of in the camp where maybe we need to see people in front of us who look like us just cooking with us. Not like giving us a big old speech about calories and stuff like that. I think maybe that is the most effective way to talk talk to people about health because once you bring up health and nutrition and diabetes and cancer and all kind of stuff, I think people kind of break down a little bit and they kind of get turned off because I get turned off when people start talking about health and nutrition and stuff like that. I get turned off and I don't really want to listen anymore. What I want is good food and food that makes me feel good. And I've recently started really paying attention to to my body and how I feel. Maybe it's because I'm getting older too, but um, how I feel after a meal, sometimes it's just so heavy and, you know, makes me lazy and stuff like that. But like a meal, like today, I feel nice. <laughs> I feel like I could go and do something else. I could go for a walk or I feel like I want to just talk. <laughs> talk and talk about something. It's a, It energizes me. And I think maybe we need to pay attention to just like how we feel when we eat certain foods and also how we feel emotionally when we eat food. It should make you happy. And I think, you know, cooking and getting into the kitchen is a really good way to make yourself happy. And um, I know some people, they hate cooking. Um, I don't know about those guys. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, but I, I also see the value in getting your hands dirty and getting into eating your own food or just at least maybe even getting to know a farmer or somebody who grows their own food because I think that process is so cool. I was talking about my little garden that I have in my backyard. I planted some blue corn and some Navajo pumpkins and some green chili in my in my backyard this this year and that's like the first time I've ever gardened as an adult. <laughs> I've always been um, interested in gardening, but it never really worked out here in Crown Point because we didn't really have like um, instruction or anything like that. What what came out of that was just like this fascination with watching things grow and like you know, learning about plants and stuff. So I always had that with me. But now that I have my own backyard, the first thing I wanted to do with that backyard was clear it out and put in a garden. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. I mean, being being a food writer and watching everybody doing all this cool work all across Native America, like literally inspired me to go and get some Navajo seeds or to plant at least Navajo seeds or seeds from the Southwest. So that's what I did. I had this blue corn that I bought from Loop, Arizona, and I put it in the ground and it's growing. And I bought uh, Navajo pumpkin seeds from Native Seed Search in mm -hmm. Arizona, and that's growing. And that's that's what I want to have growing in my backyard is indigenous vegetables. That's awesome. Um, so a lot of our listeners are not indigenous. So do you have any ways that they can kind of be an ally to the native food movement and some of the different people who are really trying to make change? Support native farmers because they're out there. And you can support native food producers because they're out there. You just have to look for them. Maybe I should just do this myself, but I would like to create like a central place where people can just go do online shopping because I know a couple of places that I go to get, you know, like maple syrup or wild rice. And with my podcast, people are always asking me like, where can I get this? Where can I get that? I'm on the road. What native restaurant should I go to? <laughs> like, well, are you near any of these five native restaurants that I know of? I want to make like a big 
website, maybe with Google Maps or something that has, you know, all these different stores and online stores and native food companies on there. So people can just browse through and look. But now there's there's not really something like that right now. Maybe I'll just do it because enough people are asking me, like, where can I find all of this? But find them. (laughs) Find them. Google, like, Native American wild rice or Great Lakes wild rice if you want wild rice or, you know, uh, beans, anything like that. You could probably find it online. I think that's that that would be a great resource. I would love that. Yeah, I should just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, that's all the questions that I had. Did you have anything else that you wanted to kind of leave us with? I would also say to build on that question of like how non-natives can be an ally is just learn what tribes are in your area. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, learn about their tribal foods and food culture. And they might even have like a salmon festival that you could go to or a harvest festival that you are welcome to. So if you want to experience some of these things, you can go to um, just what's in your area because there's native people all over the country. And then of course, um, there are nonprofit groups all over too, who do a lot of um, workshops uh, and conferences. So you can look for those kind of conferences and gatherings too. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of One to Grow On. You can find more information about Andy's awesome podcast, Toasted Sister, and her contact and social media info in the show notes of this episode. We also have links and resources to help you buy from native farmers and artisans. Special thanks to Bob Witte and Kyler Frank, who made this interview possible. We've really enjoyed doing these last two episodes, and we would love to do more. If you want to talk about farming or doing food activism in your community, or you want to suggest a guest for a future episode, please email us at one to grow on pod at gmail.com if you'd like to support the show please rate and review us on itunes or consider donating to our patreon at patreon.com slash one to grow on pod if you'd like to connect with us find us on twitter instagram and facebook at one to grow on pod the show is hosted by me hallie casey and chris casey it is produced by katherine rj and hallie casey our music is something related by broke for free be sure to check out a new episode in two weeks but until then keep on growing